0: Um, Thank you for uh, being here this morning, Um, it's really good to just have a look at who's here and uh, if you're visiting us this morning, a particular welcome to you, Uh, lovely to see you and uh, I see Phil and Carol, Uh, Phil lovely to welcome you as the Mayor of Cottesloe, as a friend, as a partner over quite a number of years, and um, <laughs> Gary Davidson, who said a few words at the end of the first service, he said, oh, Potsy's got all these things, you know, these up things and in things and out things, he's got all these things, and uh, Phil, you're part of the out thing, which is good, don't worry, because, because uh, in so much as a community focuses beyond its own four walls, it will always have life into the future. If it's not just about what goes on in here, it will always have life. And Phil, you've allowed us, as has Joe, and look, if Joe's here and I can't see her, that's a a thing, and I I apologise, but um, Joe Dawkins, the previous mayor, uh, and we've just done stuff together over the years, and you've embraced us, and uh, I'm just so thankful for our partnership in this community over that time. So... That's good news for me, and I just would like to acknowledge you and give thanks. Um, The other thing that I'm not going to do is thank anyone for anything at all, because once you start, you're dead. (laughs) You're absolutely dead in the water. Uh, And that's a sign that we've been a community that has been um, interesting. Uh, Boy, have I made some messes of things in this joint. And have some of you suffered that, for which I'd like to apologise. Boy, have some of you made a mess of some things, uh, for which you should apologise. And uh, perhaps you can find it within yourself to do that. I think the thing about that is, though, that that's actually the nature of humanity. And we're going to spin around that a little bit in the first part of this talk. That's what happens. That's called life uh, under God's rule and reign this side of heaven. Uh, The other thing, uh, that, just by way of introduction, and I was not going to go that long, don't worry, Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay in a little book called Fern Seeds and Elephants, it was a book of essays, and um, in in the actual essay, Fern Seeds and Elephants, he was actually talking about writing, and um, he said, that uh, people often say of his writing they, make, they pass judgments and comments on his writing and he said the one he always finds most interesting is oh his heart wasn't, you can tell by the quality of this writing that his heart wasn't really in it that he kind of tossed it off he said never could they be more wrong usually the worst things I wrote were the things that my heart was in more than anything else well, I wrote whatever I'm about to say at least three times this morning, threw it out at least three times, and, and I've ended up with this. So, so all I want to say is, however bad it is, doesn't mean my heart's not in it, okay? <laughs> it doesn't mean my heart's not in it. In fact, it, it truly, truly is. I want to uh, just talk a little bit about um, the passage in John's Gospel. So if you want to look at it, it's there, it's... Probably, if not the most famous thing that's ever been said in the whole of the Bible, not just the New Testament. Uh, it's probably, you know, well up there in the, the first couple of extraordinarily famous things. And, um, and I want to talk about Nicodemus because it just says in the bit that was read for us um, <clears throat> something about, uh, where do we start? Uh yeah, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. You do not. Well, who's the you? The you is a chap named Nicodemus. And if you just uh, look back, you see that this man comes to Jesus by night and uh, has a conversation with him. And I want to just tell you a bit about him because he reminds me of me. There's two things I want to talk about. And this is the first one. It's no and follow Jesus. So here we've got this guy Nicodemus and he's introduced to us as a Jew, a Pharisee, don't worry about all these things, but it just meant he was a religious leader and many of us in this church over the time that I've been here are leaders, we're leaders of something. It's very hard to get us to do things together because we're actually leaders and we all want to lead and then we look and say who's going to follow me and uh, we've got 50 leaders and it's a struggle to get followers quite often. Well, Nicodemus was um, well out of his territory, so he came to Jesus at night. And he comes to him uh, at night because um, he shouldn't actually be doing it. And the first thing that this... I like him. He's a, he's a good guy. He's not a religious weirdo. He's not a freak. He's really pursuing something with his heart, And, you know, like me in this talk, my heart's in it, however bad it is, you know. He's pursuing with his heart and he's seeking to to run his rape, to fight, fight his fight and to come near to God. And what he's got in his Jewish religion, what he's got in his religion, just like we've got in our law or our politics or our business or our finance or our power or our beauty, what he's actually got is a system, a kind of a code. He's got a code and he's following his code because he want, he's looking for something in his heart. And whatever the thing is that we follow, we're really looking for something in our heart. We're looking for it to say yes in our heart. And I was mucking around thinking of 1987, as you do, because that's the year Cheryl and I were married and I know there are people here who weren't born in 1987, but the top A rock album in 1987 was U2's Rattle and Hum. And one of the key songs of Rattle and Hum was When Love Came to Town. And just that phrase moves me, when love came to town. Isn't that what your heart longs for? That just love would come to town? Not some gooey sentimental tripe, but something that grabs you deep inside. And, and it kind of starts to bring you home. And when I came to this community up on the top of the corner of Broom Street and whatever, and I've told you many times, the word, it went bang in my head, go and love those people. I'm not saying I was love coming to town. Goodness knows, anyone who knows me knows that I'm wuffy. You know? <laughs> but I... I know what it is to want love to come to town in my life. I've had that experience. Go and love those people. And here's the thing. We only came here for this community. There was no other reason for us to be here. You're the reason that we have been here Uh, for the last 17 years, which is as long as we've been here. We're here, have been here for no other reason than by the grace of God to see something of his love come to town here. So I love Nicodemus, who's this guy who's reaching out. With all his system, all his... You know, he's got a diocese and he's got a structure and he's got head honchos and he's got all... He's got statutes and law and goodness knows what else. But in his heart of heart, he comes to Jesus at night because in his heart of heart, he's really longing for love to come to town. And what does Jesus do? He challenges him. And he says... He says... You guys look for love in the wrong place. Yes, you need to be reborn into the love of God. You need to experience a rebirth in your life. And Nicodemus goes, oh gosh, what, are you, what the heck are you, What do I do with that? I mean, what do I do with that? I've got the law, I've got a system, I've got a structure, I've got a government. I'm, you know, what do I do with you've got to be reborn? I mean, everyone's born. And Jesus says, yes, you're born by a woman, but then you need to be born again of the Spirit of God that will blow into your life if you're hungry for love to come to town. The thing that you need to know about Nicodemus was that religion, and it's not a go at religion. I'm, boy, you know, I run one of these things. But religion was the water that Nicodemus swam in. That's where he looked for what he was really looking for, for love to come to town in his heart. And what he's actually doing in this famous passage is he's trying to climb out of the tank, the tank of constraint, because he's heard about this Jesus, he's seen something of this Jesus, and he can tell this is the love that he's been looking for, beyond systems and structures. This is the one. And so for Nicodemus, love has come to town. In a little bit later in the same book, chapter 7, um, the Nicodemus' party, the Pharisees, they send out essentially police to go and arrest Jesus. And they come back and the Pharisees go, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And the men, the police that went to arrest him said this, they said, you've never heard anyone speak like this It's like love's come to town. And they couldn't arrest him. They came back with nobody. Uh, Nicodemus's lawyer mates have defined their system. And it can't be right. It can't be right without doing it our way, having our system. But when love comes to town, it's not like that. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like this even. Although you can find him here. And then it's Nicodemus, actually, at the end of Jesus' life, when he's being tried, who challenges his own party. He's growing in his affection for this love that's come to town. He challenges his own party, and he says to them, he says, even a guilty person deserves a fair trial. And you know what they say to him? They say, are you from his his fleabag town or something? You know? Are you not with us? Are you really with him? Because when love really comes to town, it actually leads you to need to make some decisions about what really matters to you. I know my dad didn't really speak to me for about three years after I became a Christian, because I went from the golden haired boy to a great disappointment. But love had come to town for me, and I had to, as the song said, catch that train. When love comes to town, you want to feel the flame. We do what we need to do when love comes to town. And any system we live by will make demands of us. You've got to get on its train, whatever that system is. You've got to get the heat of its flame, usually up the backside. That's what systems ask of us, whatever it is. Nicodemus had great pedigree and all the rest of it. But when love came to town, he wanted a piece of it. And you know, when I came to this community, it's been referred to before, it was a boat. And we're going to come to Psalm 107 and boats in a few minutes. I've nearly finished about love coming to town, but we're going to come to boats in a few, few minutes. This church had taken some hits when I arrived. Its boat had been seriously rocked. And um, it was actually a good fit. I was a good fit for a wounded community that had a really good pedigree. And that's what St. Philip's was like. Because, you know, I've wounded and I've been wounded. We all have on some level. But I still came from solid foundations. Um, Foundations that were up for an adventure and liked liked to risk Systems will never get wounded people back on top where they need to be. Systems will never really help people fly. They can support flyers, but they can't make you fly. I knew, uh, because I knew of me, that everything was redeemable, because I was. And whatever shape this place in, I knew it was redeemable because love had come to town for me and redeemed me so love could come to town here and it could bring us back together as well because that's what love does. So what I discovered from there was that mostly God shows himself to people through his own people. And this is where the stories could start. And I think we just need to have a little bit of a gaze around now. You know, and I can start. I can start in the front row. I can start nursing his baby, who's now 16 years old. I can start... I'm not going to start, you know, because we can start, can't we, Barb? We can start with people who pray prayers at the beginnings of sermons that go, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, thy rock and thy redeemer. And she hated it. It's in the musing today. She hated it, but now she loves it because love came to town through that ministry, through things that You know, drove her crazy. And, you know, you've all driven me crazy. And Alison, haven't I driven you crazy? And love's come to town between us because we've worked it out together. And we've done things together. Here's the thing when Nicodemus met Jesus, he said to himself, He gets me. He gets me. (laughs) He's a Pharisee. But he met Jesus and you can see by his behaviour throughout Jesus, throughout Jesus' work and life that Nicodemus got Jesus and Jesus got Nicodemus. Did you know at the end of Jesus' life in chapter 19 of John, who's there burying Jesus? Who's there paying for Jesus' funeral after he laid, laid down his life for us on the cross? Nicodemus. Love had come to town for him. So he gets me. But the other possibility and and reality for all of us is that when love comes to town, we go, "Uh uh-oh, he's on to me. He gets me. He's on to me. Now, I don't know what sort of person you are, but we tend to be one of three types of people. One, he gets me. Isn't that great? Or, person two, Hmm, he's on to me. That's how Jesus ended up there. They were the people who said, He's on to us. Because we all live in a little one-bedroom flat, really. Each and every one of us. This is a metaphor. Little one-bedroom one bedroom flat. And honestly, for most of us, it hasn't been renovated for years. And it's full of slop and scunge and old piles of paper with headlines on them. You know, newspapers with headlines like avarice, malice, bitterness, unforgiveness. I'll never forget that. I'll get him back later. And we hoard these things in this daggy little one-bedroom flat that's a bit scungy and hasn't been painted for years. And we keep the curtains down in the little one-bedroom flat where the little addictions cupboards live. All those things. And you know why we're like that and in the dark and live, you know, have that? He's on to me. He's on to me. We don't want anyone to be on to us. I don't want you to be on to me. And I keep the windows down and the blinds down because I don't want anyone to see because I'm actually ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of those little places. Hmm, He's on to me. And I hate it when you're on to me. The last thing I want to be is ashamed, especially near anyone round here. I mean, is anyone ashamed round here? No. But if love's come to town, we need to be the third type of person who says, oh, he gets me and he's on to me. That's what it is when love comes to town. Not only does he get me, but he's on to me, which leads to verse 17 in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Have a look at it. God loved the world so much that he gave. That's the first bit, but the second bit's the bit that really matters to me. He came into the world not to condemn the world. That's what happens when love comes to town. Not to condemn the world. Where does the condemning happen? I do the condemning, I condemn me. I despise me. I judge me. Because I live in all daggy little horrible one bedroom unrenovated place with addiction cupboards and nasty thoughts and piles of paper that remind me of everything that ever been done to me. And I... And I harbour it because he's on to me. No, when love comes to town, I'm so pleased that he's on to me because he doesn't condemn me even if I condemn myself. Even if the whole world condemns you, he doesn't condemn you. That's what love coming to town is really like. For there is now, therefore, no condemnation who have opened their arms to love who's come to town, who is Jesus. That really matters that you get that. It's not about working. It's not about trying. It's not about a system. It's just about, like Nicodemus, realising love's come to town and here he is. The song says, and uh, I'll just need a second to find what the song says. I will find it, don't worry. Ah, here, when love comes to town, I was a sailor. I was lost at sea. I was under the waves... But love rescued me. That's what the song says. That's what Psalm 107 says this morning. And you may or may not know it, but for years, decades, this uh, church has had a kind of a maritime prophetic tradition. What that means is that praying people who pray before our services have often come back with pictures and with words and biblical texts about boats. I want to tell you a few things about this place and boats because it's about when I was a sailor lost at sea, I was under the waves before love rescued me. Now, these are metaphors, folks, okay? That's what they are. They're metaphors, I was given this uh, interesting prophetic picture, and this is the second thing. Know how to sail. So I want you to know how to follow Jesus. Love's come to town. He's for me. He does not condemn me. Know how will you sail. How do you sail in life? And I just want to tell you a bit about the church, really. There There was an engine room. That was the engine room. Now, these things are pretty generic. You know, if you've been around Jesus and churches and Bibles and stuff... Faith, worship and prayer, yeah, that sounds Christian, that's good. And the Holy Spirit was the wind, was the sail. Well, that's good. But then there were three other things that sort of persisted in this prophetic sense of this church. This is 20, 30 years we're talking about. And they were warnings. And here are the warnings. The first warning had to do with this church as a flotilla. Now, flotilla is not a bad thing. It's when there's it's like the Rottnest Swim. You know, everyone's got kind of vaguely trying to get to rotness together. Okay? So it's not bad and we've we it makes sense to us here because we're individuals, we're leaders, so having small craft doing things has pretty been pretty us. Do you know what I'll get back to those. Do you know what that is? That's the Batavia. It's in Holland, I think. Parked up somewhere, remade, because remember it sank off the coast here. Big ship. Did you know the Batavia? Look at the size of it. It was part of a flotilla. It wasn't a ship sailing on its own, it was one of three or four Dut- Dutch East Indies grand ships that they'd built because they wanted to cut the middleman out of the business. They'd want to go. Sp- They wanted to go straight from Europe to Indonesia, take spices back and bring Western goodies and comforts out. This ship was stacked with gold. So it was about trade. The captain of the Batavia was a brilliant seaman, but he was an evil, wicked man. He was bad news, this dude. I mean, his mob ended up eating 150-odd, innocent people after this ship got founded off the coast. But why did it get founded? Because one night, this brilliant seaman, but evil captain, who wanted to actually create a mutiny and take control for himself of this part of the Dutch East India Company, um, turned the lights out on his ship one night and separated off from the flotilla to become his own man. Well history tells us what happens, he ended up on the rocks off the west coast and it became the biggest massacre and mutiny and mess because that's the sort of person he was. There's a warning in the flotilla and how it behaves to other boats in the flotilla and how it behaves to those on the flotilla. I've already pol- apologised to quite a number of people today, but I've got a few you who've know, been on very various flotillas that I've needed to apologise to. I haven't been quite as bad as that, Captain, but haven't been that great. <clears throat> the second warning was a cruise ship, the Ruby Princess. Great if you've got a pandemic. <laughs> lots of deck chairs, lots of places to eat, lots of places to relax together. Very clear picture that God gave me, word, was throw the deck chairs overboard. Throw the deck chairs overboard. So very clear warning from God to me, these places are not meant to be cruise ships. Thirdly, sideline the captain. Now, I'm not the captain. Kieran, who's the captain? Jesus is the captain, Okay. It's so easy when we set up structures and systems and ways to get things right that we sideline the captain because we don't need him anymore. If you sideline the Lord Jesus, you're dead. You're sunk. So they were the three warnings. There's the first warning of the flotilla. Here's the next boat that I want to introduce you to. This boat belongs to members of our congregation. I asked if I could talk about this boat. They said yes. This boat belongs to David and Jill Taylor. It's a beautiful, beautiful, big, seventy-five-foot, comfortable, ocean-going, steel-hulled sailing yacht. This is a gorgeous thing. David, it, it, it's it's vast. It's it it takes a lot of work. It's got multiple engines. It's got stuff all over the place. It has sails, so it takes a lot of work to to sail it. But look at it. Oh, it's... And David has renovated this boat himself. All by himself. If we take this metaphor to be a community, you could say essentially that David's had the vision for this, David's done most of the work for this, and everyone who sat on it has basically just enjoyed it. But here's the thing, friends: no one, I'm going to say it again, no one has actually ever enjoyed this boat because this boat has only ever sailed since the, in the 19 years that David's had it once. And it's for sale. Because boats like this are too expensive. They're too hard work. These sort of boats kill you. Listen carefully. If I was going to stay your leader, that's the sort of boat that I would want to lead. And it would kill me You'd be bored witless and I, as your leader, would run this place into the ground because I'm tired, I've worked on it for, metaphorically, 19 years, and it's been an amazing boat, but that's what I'd turn it into and it's death and it's for sale today because that's what that boat, beautiful as it is, has actually produced for my dear friends, David and Jill. Couple more boats. Have you ever seen that? We're now in the Maritime Museum. That's called the Parry Endeavour. How many times did that go round the world non stop? Three times. This is um, a picture, a metaphor, um, a model of the Parry Endeavour at uh, 3 a.m. in the morning, I think in 1987 when John Sanders realises he's in the biggest storm of his life. And that's actually how steep the angle as he came charging down the wave was. That's the sort of weather this boat endured. Now if you look at this next picture very, very carefully, you can't see it I'm afraid, but running off the back of this boat are ropes. Now I can see them only just from here, and right up there is a boy. When I first spent a whole day in this museum prayerfully meditating on this maritime metaphor, the, this boat and the next one were the two that I felt really drawn to attend to. What was attached back in back then, seventeen years ago, up here, was a great big thing like a square sail. Does anyone know what that is, Graham Whitley? A drogue. What's another name for a drogue? A sea anchor. When you're in weather like this, you need a sea anchor because that boat, just through gravity, will get its own momentum. It will go cascading essentially down that cliff and what will happen when it gets to the bottom? You think it'll go back up again. It won't. It'll just drive down into the water and the whole boat will disappear under the water and if it doesn't fill with water, they'll be very lucky and it will bob back up again eventually. So they, they have a sea anchor out the back to stop the speed of the boat going down these massive waves. Why did that matter to me? This is why. Are we in weather like that. It's not a trick question. Look at the weather. No, we are not in weather like that. And the most dangerous thing you can do in a community that's in transition is that you can actually act like we're in weather like that. Now, what happens if you're motoring along on flat water and you've got a sea anchor out? Two things. Thing one, Graham. I haven't teed him up on this, but thing one. What happens? You're very slow. You don't get to where you're wanting to go. And what can happen, can happen, is that the sea anchor can sink and actually start to sink the boat. So folks, in this community right now, that is not our position. There are no dragons out there. So don't invent them. All there is, is this. Opportunity. Opportunity. Yes. We need to redesign the boat. We need to think, what's the future boat for this community? You say, what's that? That is the sail on Australia 2 that won the 1983 America's Cup. It is so massive, so massive, that you can't really take a decent picture of it. It is just immense. Go down and have a look. And the thing about this boat that made it so iconic was this. If you're young, look it up, America's Cup, 1983, the winged keel. It was all about the winged keel. Here's the thing, how do we get sail up, how do we get fun, how do we get creativity, how do we get momentum, how do we get life? We need sail. What determines how much sail you can get up? The keel. It's not about the hull or anything else. It's the keel. All the effort here went into the keel and I want to give credit to you and particularly to our 7.30 congregation who've been the keel. And they've been the winged keel. They're old and they're quiet, but they're wise and they're gentle and they're generous and they work hard and they pray and they think about us and they don't get in the way of more sail. They just say, we need more ballast in the keel so you guys can get more sail. And that was the picture that God gave me and that's what we've tried to do for 17 years years. As you look in the cockpit of Australia too it's very purpose built. Can you see any deck chairs? Everyone's got a job. Everyone knows what their job is and everyone's released to do their job completely and fitfully and fully. As church together we've done a lot of stuff. We've done a lot of stuff. It's been hard but good, fun, false starts, some long term, some short term, some have raised us up, some's brought us low, sometimes we've hurt people, sorry, sometimes we've been hurt, I forgive you. That's life together. <clears throat> but here's the thing that Bondi did when Australia 2 was one minute behind on the fifth and last leg of the America's Cup in 1983 when it was three all. And young people, you need to know this was the biggest sporting event in the world at the time. The whole of Australia, if you were there, can remember where they were when what happened happened. It's like John Lennon being shot. Bondi was on the tender with Eileen and Ben Lexon, who designed the keel. And Bondi said, this is looking pretty bad, Ben. And Ben, who designed it, said, yeah, Alan, it's not looking terrific. He said, let's go downstairs. There's no point being up here. Oh, okay, they said. What are we going to do downstairs? What do you think Bondi did? You're never going to believe it. He prayed. He called a prayer meeting. And in the name of Jesus, he said, Jesus, you are the wind that catches sails, that takes boats places, not necessarily to a specific destination, but on a journey that is full of life and fun and passion and future. And Bondi prayed, and out of absolutely nowhere, they moved on to the far side of the course and a wind came. And they won the America's Cup by 43 seconds. What's St Philip's next boat going to look like? I don't know. But it'll need a captain... The vessel has to be the servant, not the master. The purpose is to sail. The crew need to do their job, and the jobs are going to be different, but we can't flotilla off. The destination is wherever the king says, so that means faith and worship and prayer. The deck chairs, not so much. Sheet anchors, we're not in a storm, but remember, it's good to have one if you have a storm. The flotilla isn't a problem, but if if Jesus is 100% the captain. Here's a quote. The Australia 2 crew. We're just a bunch of ordinary people galvanised by a unique bond. You have that friends. You have that Nick in Willerton. You have that James in Palmyra. We have that together as people on the way in the mission that God's got for us. Psalm 107, we seek the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. When we're on the seas together in the chaos, he's there. In the tempest he's there, on the crest he's there, in the depths he's there, reeling and staggering he's there, in fine winds and fresh seas he's there and he brings us through and we worship and we remember. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. It's been such a privilege to sail with you for this leg of this unending journey. God bless you.